you know, his son is 11 next week, and uh, I want him to look back and see that something positive came out of his dad's death and, and it wasn't for nothing. That was Sandra Geddes, whose brother Alan was murdered in Aberdeen three years ago. We'll have more from her and her meeting with the SNP Government Justice Secretary Angela Constant in just a few minutes. Hello and welcome to The Stushy, the award-winning Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip and on this episode I'm joined by Derek Healy, Justin Bowie and Adele Merson to look at the latest in Scottish politics and how the decisions in Parliament affect you. This week we have an unusually big crowd of us to rake over the latest shenanigans and a full spread of Stushies this week, covering chat about new low emission zones coming to a city near you or already with you if you live in Glasgow. Bottle recycling is a political football yet again, and the future of oil and gas is in the headlines because of Keir Starmer. The common thread in all of this is the environment, and there's lots to discuss. But first, Justin, you've been speaking to a woman from Aberdeen, Sandra Geddes, uh, with a difficult story to tell. She was in the Scottish Parliament this week to meet the Justice Secretary, talk about prison reform and mental health support. For the benefit of those who maybe don't know, the background to this story and her brother's murder. Can you bring us up to speed? Yes. So Sandra's brother, Alan, was murdered by a newly released prisoner in 2019. Sandra goes into the details of this harrowing case when I spoke to her. But since then, she's been campaigning essentially for justice and essentially looking at, you know, what can be done to help newly released prisoners when they come out of jail. The man who killed Alan... Um, didn't have any accommodation, so Alan, you know, being a kind-hearted Good Samaritan, offered him a place to stay, but was then um, murdered after he took uh, Stuart Quinn, the killer, home. So Sandra is arguing that people who come out of prison need much better support, much better help, so that they, you know, they're not a danger to the public or you know to themselves. She has campaigned for a fatal accident inquiry to find out what went wrong. So um, our attempts to get an FAI haven't worked. So she met the justice secretary this. Wednesday in Holyrood and she's hoping now that she can get some progress in terms of reforming the law. Okay well um, we'll put this up again afterwards. Justin you started the interview by asking Sandra how her meeting with Angela Constance went. A long story it goes back to 2019 when my uh, brother was um, murdered by a chap that um, had just been released from jail. Um, he was released uh, by the judge uh, that day, he didn't know he was being released and he was released without any accommodation. Um, he was obviously in a state. Um, he became psychotic when he took illicit drugs, but he obviously still got released and met my brother uh, in a nightclub. Um, and. He didn't have anywhere to stay. My brother felt sorry for him, tried to get accommodation for him and um, couldn't. It was 7th of December, party time. Um, hotels were full. Um, so he ended up um, saying that he would give him a room for the night. Unfortunately, Quinn um, had obviously taken psychotic drugs, cocaine and um, alcohol. And I don't know really what else for the ease I'm not sure um, but he took a psychotic episode and um, obviously believed that my brother was the enemy and there were people upstairs with guns um, and he attacked my brother and stabbed him 40 times 
he um, had had these psychotic um, episodes in the past. I found out in 2018 that he he had um, had an incident um, in a block of flats where he lived um, at uh, 5.30 in the morning and he was smashing an internal door. Uh, Again, he was uh, high on on drugs. Um, The police were called, he was left... And then on um, later on that that day, eleven o'clock, he um, attacked a family in the downstairs flat, again believing that there were people chasing him with guns, and that um, the people in the flat were um, the enemy as such. Um, and he was he was arrested um, then, so he had a history of um, this kind of behaviour. Um, and I'm here. Uh, today because I believe that um, there were catastrophic mistakes made um, with his care up till he was sent uh, uh, sent to jail in uh, September 2019. When he was released that day, for him to be released when he had those psychotic episodes and he had been assessed by uh, psychiatrists and to be let out um, into society. If it hadn't been my brother that was murdered that day, um, it would have been someone else. It would have been, even if the report, there was a report done by the Scottish Mental Welfare Commission um, that um, did a report on him from 2018 until my brother's death. And it was a catastrophic amount of uh, mistakes um, and that were made with his, with his care. And there was absolutely no true care provided by no accommodation. So I'm here today to get the government to uh, take on the recommendations um, from the Mental Welfare Commission. And um, my MSP here, uh, Douglas Lumsden, um, brought it up in the Criminal Justice Committee um, to be looked at. And um, there was a meeting arranged for today uh, for myself and Douglas to attend with um, Angela, the uh, Minister for for uh, for justice, the meeting um, went very well. It is a it is a combination of of mistakes that happened and and procedures that um, should have happened but didn't happen, procedures that should be in place that are not there, protocols that should be put in place um, to prevent this from happening again, and um, the. The meeting was very positive. Um, they took on board that there's several things that need to be changed. There's a lot of work to be done um, in providing through care for uh, prisoners in remand um, because there's nothing there right now. Um, so I'm satisfied today that these changes are going to be made and um, now have a little bit more trust in the government that um, they're looking at this seriously and uh, they're going to make the changes that are needed. And I'm going to stay on board and follow these changes through to make sure that they're done. Um, and they're, again, very willing for that to, uh, for that to happen. So between myself and, and Douglas here, we will um, be pushing uh, to make sure that these changes are made. Timescales could be a year, um, but that's fine. At the end of the day, it's the, the, the changes that are needed um, the timescale 
a year. It seems a long time, but there's so much work to be done. Um, I'm quite um, um, pleased that um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to start to happen. And it already has started to happen because they're talking about it. Um, and when people start to talk about something, then we, we know that something's being done. So what was particularly positive about the meeting then? What what changes do you think are you confident that will happen now that you perhaps weren't confident would go through before? I think the the through care, um, you know, it, it states in the in the report that if if Quinn had um, had accommodation that night, my brother would still be not alive today. It also states that there might have been. Uh, if he had accommodation, he may have um, gone on to murder someone else, um, because th- that was what was going to happen if he took he took drugs because he he became psychotic. Um, but they need to look at putting protocols in to enable them to um, look at prisoners like that and say, well, we they are going to be harmful to society, and we need a protocol to be able to to hold them and treat them. I was going to ask as well. You, you mentioned the fact that. The report mentioned if Quinn had been given accommodation of some sort, your brother may still be alive today. How angry were you when you first read that? How frustrating was it to know that these failures cost your brother his life? Um, that was because it, when I got the report um, last November, when I first looked at it to, to go through it before we, it was going to be published, and we needed to review it. And it was the first paragraph that I read because I, I got a, a shortened uh, version to, to run through and it made me very angry because something as simple as someone picking up a phone and saying we have a prisoner here um, he he's upset um, but he's being released, the judge is uh, releasing him today, he, he didn't know he was being released and we need accommodation for him that one phone call and my brother would have still been alive today. So even that simple change would have made a difference. But because of that, we're going to now hopefully see a lot bigger of changes, a lot more changes in the whole procedure of through care um, for p- prisoners on remand specifically is important um, that um, this is not going to happen to someone else in the future. Does it anger you that it has taken a case as harrowing as this for you and your family for change to happen? If, if, if these changes had happened years ago, you may not have gone through this. So is is that something that's quite difficult as well, that has taken as long as this for anything to be done? What made me angry? Um, you know, when I looked at it at, at the beginning, I looked at mental health issues and, and then found out um, that he... Um, he had made the decision to take these drugs, so uh, you know he, he he was responsible for that. But what made me angry was I asked for an FAI way back. I was turned down for an FAI, and in the letter I was told he didn't have any mental health issues, and he was quite capable of finding accommodation for himself. I asked for a review um, of that FAI for them to review it, and I'm still waiting. For the crown to get back to me. That's what's making me angry. That time scales. Here I am today, and I'm only here today because of the Mental Health Commission, because they've done their job, and yet the crown can't even pick up the phone and tell me whether I'm going to get an FEI or not. 
you've said before in the press and journal that part of the reason you're campaigning is also for your brother's family as well who you know for his kids who have had a difficult experience through all this as well how harrowing has this been for you and your family people ask me that question and and I, I actually spoke about it with, with Angela, that it's it hasn't been easy. Um, you know, it takes its toll. There are times when I sit and reflect and think, you know, am I going to get anywhere? But, you know, when I get people on my team like um, Douglas, um, and now I feel quite confident with, with Angela, and the press have helped people like yourself, P&J, um, Sky, BBC News, have all given me the kind of support that I need uh, and the strength to say, Sandra, you're doing a great job, you know, get on with it. And um, that kind of gears me up to to carry it through. And I need to do it for his son. You know, his son is 11 next week and uh, I want him to look back and see that something positive came out of his dad's death and, and it wasn't for nothing. That was Sandra Geddes there speaking to, to you, Justin, and mentioned, of course, uh, Douglas Lumsden, an MSP in the Northeast, um, uh, Aberdeen-based guy himself, who's been helping with that. I mean, there was quite a lot to, to take in from, from that interview. It's clearly a, a harrowing background, and um, it's remarkable that people like Sandra can sort of try and find something positive to come out of something so brutal as, as, a, as the murder of her brother. Adele, you, you know, you're based in Aberdeen as well. Uh, this was a big court case at the time. I mean, listening to that interview... Do you think that there's there's clearly an appetite here for some government-led changes that could make a difference? I mean, people talk about mental health, they talk about prison reform all the time. It so often becomes really bogged down in party politics. Is there is there any kind of hope for something positive out of this, really? Yeah, I guess because this is such a such a shocking case and it's a real life example that people can obviously read the full story and they see the impact of what can happen if the right kind of procedures aren't necessarily in place and I guess that humanizes it a lot more and makes it a lot more real for people mm. there's a lot of focus on when it comes to justice it feels like a lot of focus is on you know people's sentences and what they're going to be doing in prison but there perhaps needs to now be a much stronger focus on what happens to prisoners once they leave prison because for some of them as in this case they've got mental health issues or they've got trauma that they're not kind of accustomed to living life outside of an institution I think there's a lot more could be done in working out how do you rehabilitate you know continue their rehabilitation which hopefully has started in prison to make sure that these really harrowing incidents don't happen I think as you say there it's just really inspiring that it's such a horrible story and just one of those you know, ones where it's the wrong place at the wrong time. And I think it's inspiring for her that she can take that very tragic event and try and actually make sure yeah. that change happens. I don't know if anyone else thinks the same, but I mean, I'm, I'm struck listening to debates in this place, in Scottish Parliament, a lot about um, how particularly the Conservatives and the SNP, or um, maybe more Liberals as well, argue so much about whether we're too soft on crime, the soft just soft touch justice and all that kind of thing was a, a refrain thrown at the SNP a lot. Uh, interesting, of course, Douglas Lumsden is a conservative MSP um, and we're here talking about how to better support prisoners, in, uh, including, you know, the case of a, a man who stabbed someone to death. I don't know, Derek, I mean, the, you, you listen to this sort of justice debates as well, the tone of debate around these issues, does it does it lead people to anything constructive? Is this why we're in this place in the, you know, 
at all. You know, why we've got people like this out looking for help. Do you know, I think, if I'm being totally fair, I think the Scottish Parliament probably has better nuance on that than Westminster. Mm. There is a sort of rhetoric sometimes of, of both main parties at Westminster trying to be tough on crime and trying to be seen that way. And we've seen that with some of the sort of attack ads that were put out about Rishi Sunak from Labour, for example. Mm. I think quite often that nuance is missing and I think it takes cases like this to, to make people really realise that rehabilitation can be so important and it has to be a big part of the justice system. Yeah, I think we do hear some of that coming across and some of the debates that happen, um, but probably more of it's needed. I think that's a fair point. Yeah. I mean, Justin, you, you were following the story, and if anyone wants to read a little bit more of, of the background, um, it's available on our Preston Journal pages uh, online. What what was the government saying after the meeting as well? I mean, you were in touch with them. Yeah, so the government um, have been saying that they are going to look at reforms. This is something that they kind of want to look into. As Sandra alluded to during the interview, it's not something that's going to be easy. It's going to take time. Clearly, there are a lot of systemic problems here. You know, it's, it's not just a case of introducing a new law, prisoners come out of jail and everything is fine. There's going to be a lot of work there. But, but I thought it was quite interesting when we talk about the tone of debate and, you know, the divisiveness we've seen in Hollywood, primarily between the SNP and conserv Conservatives, that, you know, when I spoke to Douglas Lumsden as well, after I speak to Sandra, he was quite positive about the meeting too. He got a sense of we're all trying to work to the same thing here where, I mean, I suppose there's two aspects. When prisoners get out of jail, when they're part of society again, they need to be looked after, they need accommodation, they need people looking out for them. But also then there is the second part where, you know, we need to be confident that when prisoners are on the, or, you know, former prisoners are on the streets, that the people around them are safe. And the tragedy in this case is that, you know, Alan tried to help a prisoner, tried to help somebody that was in need and ended up losing his life for that. Mm. And I think all of us would like to be in a society where we feel that we can help people and it's not seen as something that's going to put us at risk. Yeah. And it's not something that's going to put us in danger. So I think this, there was a positive feeling here of, for especially for Sandra, you know, having come down to Hollywood, having had a really frustrating process so far, there was a feeling from her that there was a proper kind of will to kind of work here in a cross-party sense, but also within the government. It seems that they are sort of taking this seriously and hopefully yeah. for Sandra and other people who have experienced similar things to this, hopefully that continues. Okay, well, on to the rest of the sweet stories that we sort of talked about just before all that. Um there's a lot going on and there's an environmental theme running through everything else, really. Labour got itself thrown right into the oil and gas debate again. Um, Sir Keir Stammer signalled uh, at the start of the week that he, he's maybe thinking about blocking new development. Um, massive implications, particularly up the east coast of Scotland and uh, Aberdeen in particular. That obviously led to the usual argument about how and when to wean a country like Scotland off fossil fuels. Adele, you've been following this. Has Scottish Labour now got a problem? Definitely, I would say so. In the northeast of Scotland, anyway, it's it's fair to say that those that kind of proposal's gone down like a bit of a lead balloon mm. from you know a whole range of people from the SNP to industry people like the Chamber of Commerce and um, offshore energies. They they just think it it sends out the wrong message to both for in terms of the transition towards more renewable forms of energy because you do need these big oil and gas companies mm. on board for that too because they put some of their money towards these kind of technologies and, and they play a part in obviously making the transition mm -hmm. and also because I guess there's an argument that it harms 
people actually wanting to to kind of invest going forward. We've seen quite a high profile story recently about one of the, the oil and gas companies in Aberdeen that's actually blamed things like the windfall tax for going through a redundancy process and potentially losing hundreds of members of staff. So the industry is already saying that they're they're under pressure. Obviously, there's there's lots of views around windfall taxes and many people think they're, they're justified because of these huge profits, but it's a very complicated area at the moment. Um, I think what's been interesting is the SNP have very quickly tried to come out on this and speak out against it. We had energy, the energy minister, Gillian Martin, gave um it was an event with our uh, sister website energy voice where she kind of condemned labor saying that they were being tone deaf with their plan and it was too simplistic but it's a strange one because yeah. obviously the smp and green government have called for a presumption against new oil and gas exploration and they've said they want the fastest possible transition so it doesn't necessarily seem like there's you know a huge much between the two positions as such it's it's more in the kind of nuance of how it's being delivered perhaps so it's quite a strange one yeah um and we've got msps in in scottish labor party of course that cover the northeast it's not an enormous support base that they have in the northeast labor at the moment but they're clearly trying to make inroads and all this uh this intervention from keir starmer at least it's being attributed to him as part of his upcoming energy strategy um it comes at a time where Labour are trying to increase their vote and they think they might get back into second place in the, uh, in the Hollywood polls and they might well win a whole bunch of seats in Scotland as they try to form the next UK government. I mean, Derek, what do you think? This is, is there any kind of worry in the ranks there about how this might play out politically? Which was interesting. So um, Keir Starmer came to Kirkcaldy just the other day and I had a sit down with him when he came and... Um, one of the things we talked about was that he was keen to make a bit of a push in the northeast. Um, I think Adele and I had this conversation as well. But in previous elections, there's been some kind of criticism, I think, from local members sometimes over how well the campaign has been run, how much of a push there's been in those areas where traditionally they've, they've struggled a little bit. So he said he was going to try and make some inroads um, at the next general election. It's interesting just to try and think about how this kind of policy is going to do that. You know, right in the back of that to announce this, I think it's going to be a really tough sell for them and a really mm. tough sell for whoever is standing in, in, in those kind of areas. We've obviously not seen the full detail on it yet. We've not seen a full run through exactly what it is they're going to do. They've talked about how it's not going to be about, you know, reducing anything that's already there. It's going to be about new things getting introduced. That's what they're putting a kind of block on. Mm. So yeah, I think we need I think we need to see the full detail on it, but it's it's hard to see how this is going to be a vote winner um, in the northeast for them. I'm talking of vote winners, everyone's Fallen out about another big environmental policy at the moment. That's um, the seemingly innocuous recycling scheme, the deposit return scheme, which is turned into a political football du jour. It's 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 about devolution. It's about independence. It's really just about glass. Justin, what's going on with the DRS? So yeah, the deposit return scheme. This is one that keeps on dragging on and on. So it was an environmental recycling scheme meant to be introduced this summer originally. And basically the idea is that you pay a bit more when you buy, you know, glass or bottles or cans from shops and, and all those sort of places. But the idea is if you can take it to a recycling point and you get 20 pence back. So basically meant to encourage people to recycle. But the scheme has been heavily criticised by, well, I suppose almost all sorts of businesses that have been involved, seeing up costs, 
It'll put them under more pressure at a time when, you know, we're already in the midst of a cost of living crisis. They've also said that it's been poorly designed. You know, often the return points are quite far away from, you know, the venues where you're buying things. So potentially people are having to drive to a venue to get their 20 pences back, which then kind of undermines the whole environmental side of it. The latest route has been over the inclusion of glass in the scheme. So this has been quite controversial because the UK government have said they're not going to include glass in their own scheme. That's then created concerns over how Scotland and the rest of the UK are going to align up with this in terms of, you know, trading north and south of the border. The Scottish government have said that this is sort of another row over devolution. It's another attempt from the UK government to undermine Holyrood. But the UK government have said, well, is it not just sensible for Scotland and England and you know, Wales as well to be aligning on this? It, the glass aspect's been interesting as well because... In a lot of areas, we do sort of have curbside glass recycling. Some people say it's not necessarily the, the best way of doing it. It's not always the most reliable, but it does create a scenario where, you know, you're potentially using, you know, bottle banks for your glass, but also then taking bottles back to a, a DRS return point. And surely there should be a way where those sort of things can just be the, the same in a sense. But it, it's yeah. become another flashpoint where devolution is at the centre of this row and yeah the SNP feels the UK government trying to undermine them whereas the UK government are simply saying well you've designed this scheme poorly and it's not our fault if you know we need to step in and get involved here yeah yeah I mean it, it, Lorna Slater who's the Green Minister in charge of it all um has been up and about on this one quite a lot recently and it, it, it doesn't seem anyone's happy anyone is happy and it, in parliament it's always becomes a constitutional thing um so I've the latest, of course, being that they think that the whole scheme might crumble, and then, of course, it becomes a blame game about who who's to blame for that one. And and the costs are huge. Loads of people have set up stuff. stuff. There's infrastructure in place already. And while they're all dealing with that one, that's douchey, there's another one starting off because um, we're talking about low-emission low zones. Um, one came into force in Glasgow just yesterday. Um and there's other ones coming around as well. I, I I was on social media about this a little bit yesterday, and it was remarkable how many people seemed to suggest, oh, when were we asked about this? We had no idea about this kind of thing. But it's been consulted on, It's it's been talked about a lot. But do people understand what low emission zones are and whether they're a good thing or a bad thing or what what's their, what's their point? So, yeah, so the low emission zone is now being enforced in Glasgow. It's very much in the city centre area, but basically what it means is that cars from if you're petrol if you're a petrol car it's cars from 2006 and further back and the date for diesel is a bit later it essentially means that you'll be fined if you take these cars into the city center of glasgow so that is the sort of most stringent enforcement we've seen of it so far that level of enforcement is expected to come into place in other cities and it sort of formed the main line of questioning from douglas ross during first minister's questions yesterday the actual area that is being enforced in Glasgow is, I mean, it's the city centre, but, it, you know, when you look at the city as a whole, it's a rel relatively smallish area. There's some very big built-up areas that are excluded right now, but it's that sort of, you know, core city centre area. What's become mm. controversial is that, you know, it's different if you're just driving to the city and you can maybe get a train or a bus instead, but there are businesses within the city centre who perhaps rely on, you know, using transportation in some form or, or another, and they're saying, well, if we have an old vehicle, it's not necessarily easy to replace it. The main one that was mentioned was a sort of homeless project group in Glasgow. 
They, they were yeah. given an exemption at the last minute, so they will be fine. But the fact that it's maybe taken to that stage to get an exemption is, you know, I, I think a source of controversy. I, I think most people understand that if you want to tackle the climate crisis, you, you do need to encourage people out of cars. And sometimes that might you know involve some blanket measures, especially in our cities where car use is very heavy and it's not necessarily very great environmentally for residents and workers there. But it does seem like if we're going to have a scheme like this, homeless charities should not have to be kind of begging at the last minute for an exemption. It seems like that's something we should be able to sort out beforehand. Yeah. Politically, it's pretty crazy too to to allow a scheme to get to this point and still not have something sorted like a homeless charity getting told it's going to get fined for doing its work around the city centre. Quick trot around the room here because um, you know these zones are coming to a, a city near you. I mean, what's what's the... Where are we with other places? I mean, Dundee and Aberdeen in particular, they're getting them. Yeah, so I think in, in, in Dundee, first of all, you know, there was a, a kind of minor row when this is first being discussed. I mean, it's worth saying that these are in place. So there is a low emission zone in place in Dundee right now. What's mm. happening is that that isn't being enforced yet. So it's going to be from next year, it's going to be enforced. So there was, there was a kind of minor row when this was first brought in over some of the areas that are included and aren't included. You may have some areas that have slightly higher pollution or cars kind of sitting around that aren't affected by this because they're not in that low emission zone. Um, I mean, I think that there's there's obviously the kind of big political argument here boils down to you have these areas where kids' health is being seriously affected by this. You know, having high levels of pollution that can have lifelong impacts on on health. We had reports come out when this was being announced in Dundee, those reports were kind of highlighted at the time and saying this is the real world impact of this. Um, but the other side of the argument here is, you know, first of all, to do with charities and, and organisations like that, where this has to be resolved so that you know, something has to be in place for them. But also, I mean, just in the case of there will be families with older cars who can't afford to go and buy a new car, mm-hmm. who now also can't afford to go into city centres to get what they need to get. They're going to have to go other places. It rises costs. Um, so I think, it's, I think it's a really, really difficult one. But um, what we've seen in the case of Glasgow, certainly, is that when this has come into place, things have not been ready for it. You know, there hasn't been the yeah. structure around it that's needed. We're a year away from it coming in in Dundee, and I think what a lot of people would be really keen to see is for any of those issues to be ironed out by the time it's rolled out in Dundee and other places. Yeah, it's the same in Aberdeen where the it will come into force in basically a, a year's time. And in terms of, of the city centre here, I think one of the, the big issues would be that there's problems at the moment with the roads in general because we have so many roadworks. It's ask any Aberdonian and they'll moan to you for a very long time about the roadworks. I've actually stopped going to my parents' house at the moment because I spent an hour trying to get there and it's a 15-minute journey. Um, so I think that's a major issue with Aberdeen's one is that the road connectivity at the moment is just not good. And then you add in this scheme where people will start to complain you know, that they also potentially can't travel on certain roads because of the LEZ. I mean, obviously, as laudable aims, it's just about how do you kind of get the public on, on board with it and make sure that they actually know that it's... It's coming. Um, another issue, I guess, related to it's kind of what Derek alluded to there, but it's the location of some of the streets. Our um, environment reporter, Kieran Beatty, he's done a lot of work for the mm. Press and Journal on the LEZ in Aberdeen, and he actually did a piece where he took to the streets to sort of get an idea of which are included and which aren't. And I think I saw a comment from him saying that 
for example, your Belmont Street that's in the zone, and that's a, I think it's only vehicles that are dropping off, you know, like delivery vehicles that can use that. It's, it's generally a, more like a pedestrianised street. But then you've got the street beside Robert Gordon's where parents are dropping off children, and I don't think that's included. So obviously you've got cars there letting off fumes. There's, there's certain kind of inconsistencies yeah. there in terms of the area, though I guess you're never going to keep every, everyone happy necessarily. Um, and he, he also did a sort of exercise where he himself put registration plates through there's some kind of online thing that can tell you whether your car will or will not be able to go into an LEZ and I think he found out of 349 would be banned so the vast majority are not banned but yeah those 49 people obviously won't be happy and he said it's not he was surprised he thought it would be sort of like rust bucket cars but there were Audis, Mini Coopers, BMWs that that were within the ones that would be unable to go into the LEZ. Okay, well, I mean, Adele, that's that's shocking. You, you, your your entire family's been split by roadworks in Aberdeen. Um, that was quite something. It's like the Berlin Wall potholes are that bad in Aberdeen. But um, anyway, I think we've we've sorted out all those environmental problems there. Well, actually, Justin, you you're you live in Glasgow, so what, I mean, you you are literally there on the ground. Uh, well, how how's it actually been? seen there well, i think i think it's maybe quite divisive I, I live in the city of glasgow and the area i'm in it's quite built up but it's not affected by the low emission zone and i suppose among some who are more in favor there is a sense of you know people coming from out the city who don't necessarily pay council tax driving their cars in the city and you know I, I think the city center of glasgow is not necessarily the most built up area residentially and there definitely is a push you know to to make it more you know resident friendly and so it's not just for cars and offices and shops essentially and you know there's other things i mean there's talk of knocking down some of the city's biggest shopping centers and pedestrianizing the areas and turning them into sort of you know essentially areas are, are more friendly to people and along with that might be more of a drive to you know if people are driving to the shops getting them going to you know some of the shopping centers on the fringes of the city like you know silverburn and Brayhead instead of always coming into the city. So, yeah, yeah, there's definitely a lot of anger and there's a lot of business anger. But among residents, I, I would say that, you know, Glasgow's a big city. It's got the public transport links are far from perfect. But if you're in a built-up area, there's a lot of good public transport links. So there are a lot of people who are almost a bit, you know, not too fussed by it, who maybe don't mind the fact that not everybody's going to be using these, you know, old polluting cars. But, you know... I say that as somebody who isn't driving a lot. There are people who obviously drive every day and, you know, the public transport infrastructure is far from perfect. Last year we had constant strikes. So, you know, yeah, it sounds great to say to somebody, well, you've got a train link or a subway subway link that takes you to work in the city centre, just use that instead. But what happens the next time the trains are on strike and you can no longer really get into work? You know, the cycling infrastructure is okay, but it could be far better. So... I think for now, you know, among the average person, there's not necessarily a lot of outrage, but yeah, there's clearly difficulties there and I can understand why somebody who drives more than I do or somebody who runs a business in the city centre might be a bit aggrieved at this. Glasgow's got quite good recycling. I've got a bus into Edinburgh today. That's a city which has long struggled with cars and fitting everything onto streets that were designed for horses. But um, yeah, buses and cycles and everyone else sharing the same lane. So it's a a never-ending saga that conversation in Edinburgh and things will happen here too. I think that's going to be a big part of it though, isn't it, in terms of trying to make it a success because I, I was showing someone around Dundee just last week and they were really impressed with how good it is for cycling. Um, so if you can build it up and make it more pedestrianised, it's better to get around, it's easier to use public transport and electric buses and all these kind of things. 
that it's not such a big deal to have these low emission zones. But mm. if it's a nightmare to get around, then people are going to go mad because yeah. you know they need to get around. There needs to be a way to do it. So I think that's one of the big factors here. All right. Okay. Well, angry all round, um, and lots of things need to get sorted. But that's all we have time for this week. So thank you to Justin Bowie, Derek Healy, Adele Merson, guest Sandra Geddes, producer Morvan McIntyre, and of course to you for listening. We'll be back next week. Until then, pick up a paper or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed.